0: 1 Timothy chapter five. We're moving quickly to the end of this epistle. It's pretty fascinating, and I, I've been amazed at how quickly it seems like it's gone by. We just started this, and uh, and now we're coming to the conclusion of this section, and it's just it's gone by so quickly. And there's so much here for us to grasp. And I trust tonight will be another fruitful time as we study uh, the remainder of this chapter. Really, we'll go right up to the end of chapter five and get ready to go into chapter six in just a couple of weeks whether that's David or myself, is yet to be determined. Let's read together just for the sake of context. Let's read all of chapter 5 together. You follow along as I read. And uh, remember that we're discussing relationships within the body, particularly the relationship of Timothy to the body that he is serving, that he has been placed in for leadership's sake. And Paul is giving him some instructions flowing from chapter 4 and the attention to Timothy's character now It's an attention on the relationships that Timothy has to the people of God there in Ephesus. Do not rebuke an older man, verse 1 says in chapter 5, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Let a widow be enrolled or enlisted if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith." Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after the slanderer that is Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now we come to verse 17. This is where we'll study this evening. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and, the second quote, the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, that is for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality or favoritism. Verse 22, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, "...nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, are, that are not cannot remain hidden." That is, they'll come forth eventually. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. The church is God's primary priority today. And we know that, we've established that, we've discussed it. In fact, we started our studies together with a look at the church in the New Testament. The church is the place of God's promise, blessing. Israel has been set on the sidelines of God's blessing because of their apostasy and the church has been granted the blessing and the attention of the head of the church, Christ Jesus, who established it and who builds it. The church is God's promised place of blessing, and the promised growth comes from God Himself. The church will not be thwarted. It will be established. The gates of hell will not stand against it. The church will only be as healthy and as blessed in this relationship as God's priority, as its leadership represents. And this is really kind of a no-brainer, but leadership within the local church has fallen on hard times. Leadership has been minimized. The world standards have been used to establish leadership within the church. The corporate American standard has been used for the expectations of those who are placed in church leadership so that pastors are CEOs rather than shepherds. They are not builders who are giving themselves to the ministry of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, but they are managing large corporations with a year-end review for the sake of seeing how successful they have been that year in ministry. And leadership is crucial. Qualified and identified elders, and that is plural in verse 17. Qualified and identified. Qualified in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Identified by the church, the body. They are needed. And the relationship to them from Timothy must be appropriate. He is to approach them properly. He is to lay an example before the body, the church, for its relationship to the elders who provide leadership over her. Now this is a long section, and I'm a little bit intimidated by the length of what we have here from the Apostle Paul's pen. But I think we can divide this section, if we're careful tonight, we can divide it into three principles that will guide us. There are three principles that really jump out of this paragraph that will guide us in our understanding, in our expectation, and in our relationship to the leadership that God has ordained over the church, elders. We looked in review last week to see that all the way from 5, verse 1, and we read it tonight, all the way through chapter 6, really in verse 2, we should have concluded our reading through chapter 6, verse 2, we are talking about relationships, specifically The last two weeks, we've looked at the relationship of the church to widows. Now we've turned a corner and we'll look at the relationship of the church to its elders. And then finally, we'll conclude with the relationship of slaves within the church to their masters. How was the church to relate to having slave and master relationships represented within the same body? Which is vitally important for us. We live in a culture where that particular section is crucial to our understanding. How will we deal with workers and employers, employees and employers within the same body? And so that's what we'll conclude with in chapter 6. But for tonight, we'll look at and examine these three principles that will guide us in the relationship of the church to its elders. Okay? There are three principles. Here they are. Very quickly, honor elders appropriately, honor them appropriately, Verses 17 and 18, discipline them fairly, verses 19 and 21, or 19 to 21, and then appoint them cautiously. Honor them appropriately, discipline them fairly, and then appoint them cautiously, or carefully maybe is a better word, be careful in the appointment of elders. Let's begin then with honor them appropriately and it flows directly out of the concepts we find in verses 17 to 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially of those who labor, or especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Double honor is the honor that is due for those who give themselves as elders to the preaching and teaching ministry, specifically to the preaching and teaching ministry. Now, let's just get something out in the open. There's a large elephant in the room. I'm standing before you. This is what we call the you know, the pay-me text. Um, no one likes to come to this passage. I told my wife today, I dread 1 Corinthians 9 more than I dread this one because it's twice as long. <laughs> it has the same message. And yet this is clear teaching, this is an expectation, and this is not my planned opportunity to bring any complaint in any way for what the Lord has done and what He has raised up here at Grace Church. This is being accomplished, and we are grateful for this being done. Here's the standard. Those who rule well, that is, manage well the church, and those who give themselves the management of the church being done well is further described by the ones who give themselves specifically to preaching and to teaching, to the labor in the Word. You'll remember from chapter 3 in our study of the qualifications for elders that all elders must be apt, they must be able, they, they are responsible to be teachers of God's Word, right? That is not a specific role for a specific elder. Another elder is left untouched by that expectation, All are to manage the church, and they are plural within the local body, and all are to give themselves to teaching. And so the elders are not divided here, and that is maybe many of the reformed circles that you may have come in contact with have ruling elders and they have teaching elders. Maybe this is something that you've encountered It seems obvious from chapter 3 and then in correlation here with chapter 5, verse 17, that elders who rule well are also elders who teach well and give themselves specifically to the preaching, the proclamation of God's word, and the instruction of doctrine for the body. And double honor is to be given to these elders. You say, what is the double honor? Elders, those who are the shepherds of the church, the under-shepherds, delegated leadership of the church, Paul assumed their right to be compensated for the work, the labor of ministry. 1 Corinthians 9 does deal with that. You can, We'll look at that maybe in just a little bit and see some of the cross-references there. If we go back into the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, which is not the church, but the nation of Israel also assumed this of their priests, that they would be given compensation so that they could give themselves to the work of the ministry. I don't think that's hard for us to understand in American culture. We grasp that. What's more difficult is the double honor part. What is double honor? Double what? What is doubled? What is the sense in which Paul commands Timothy, now make sure that of the elders, those who are particularly gifted in their management and their leadership, and those who are particularly skilled and give themselves to the preaching and teaching ministry, make sure that they are compensated with double honor. What does that mean? Well, first of all, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that all elders are paid and that these elders get double whatever the other ones are making. Okay? That is not what is being instructed here all elders are not paid many would set aside their right to be paid and all elders have that right to be supported for the work of the ministry many would set that aside and serve without payment from the church and yet they are worthy of honor respect we have a twofold aspect here those elders who rule well and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching are not just to be respected and honored for their Place in God's purposes, not for any merit of their own, but they are also to be compensated on top of that. They are to be cared for in a special way, in a twofold sense, a double honor. There's an illustration given to us in verse 18, really a twofold illustration, because it comes from two different passages of Scripture, and Paul backs this up with these passages. Especially is the word that he uses for the preaching and teaching. This will, in verse 17, lay out a further explanation of those who are to be double-honored, those who give themselves to preaching and teaching. Why? Well, the Scripture gives you this example. Here is the example from Scripture. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, lays the principle out, "...you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain." That is, the ox that's working so hard for you ought to be able to have a little food while he's working. Don't stick a muzzle on his nose. Let that guy eat something while he's going along doing the plow work for you. He's in his yoke. He's working hard. He's doing a fine job. Don't cover up his mouth. That's the principle. The second quote is from the ministry of our Lord, which is fascinating. Because it comes from Luke. Luke 10.7 is the second quote. The laborer deserves his wages. The laborer, in context, is a farm laborer. It is a field worker. And he deserves to be paid. It is not right to withhold his wages. He has worked for the master of the farm. And he deserves to be paid. Interesting that it's in Luke because Luke was a member of Paul's ministry team. I don't know if you ever have a curious mind like mine, but that's fascinating to me. Luke must have already been in an early draft form written out when Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. This is late in Paul's life. Luke obviously had already completed portions of his gospel, if not all of his gospel account, that would be compiled and would serve as the gospel of Luke in our canon. And he quotes it as scripture. This is his contemporary. This is the doctor who traveled with him. He loved Luke. And this is Luke's record of the Lord's words that Paul quotes as Scripture. He says in verse 18, For Scripture says, Scripture illustrates this for you. Now the pictures are not flattering. An ox and a farmhand. These are the two pictures of the elder who gives himself to preaching and teaching. I'm not sure that these are the pictures that I necessarily want to think of when I think of an elder. A big, smelly ox who's out plowing a field. Or farmhand who's out amongst the masses doing his work in relative solitude. And yet, that is exactly the picture that is painted. Laborers, ox, they are hard-working. They are faithful workers that accomplish their task. And for that, they are to be honored. That is, they are to be compensated. The point is that preaching and teaching and leading are to be hard work. And if they are accomplished well and if they are accomplished faithfully, they deserve to be cared for. All elders must rule and teach, but those who are particularly skilled or are particularly given to that ruling and teaching are commanded to be compensated for their efforts so that they may give themselves entirely to the work of the gospel, right? That's the point of... Compensation. It's not a pursuit of riches. This is not a light bulb for young men to say, well, this is great. If I give myself to preaching and teaching, I can be compensated by the church. Rather, this is an opportunity to give themselves entirely to the ministry of the gospel without distraction. And this is a privilege that Paul set aside for the sake of his testimony, right? You remember this. That's what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. Paul is saying, I have every right to demand that you care for me financially, and I'm going to set it aside, I'm making tents, only because my my testimony, my gospel credibility is being attacked, and therefore, for the sake of giving no one cause to say anything evil about me, Paul set aside this privilege. So, Timothy is commanded, and the church is commanded through Timothy's leadership to honor the elders appropriately. Secondly then, in verses 19 to 21, discipline them fairly. Discipline elders fairly. And what a wealth of wisdom is found in these verses. Do not admit a charge. Don't listen to a charge against an elder. Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses discipline them fairly. First and foremost in verse 19, elders are not to be charged, they are not to be accused without the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think about how many church debacles this would have ended early. If our mindset was, I don't listen to that unless there is a wide if there is several people that are bringing a complaint, I don't want to hear it. An accusation needs to be grounded Because an accusation against an elder is an accusation that can tear down the validity and the credibility of the gospel witness in a location. And you've seen this. You've seen the disaster that is a pastor's falling, his credibility being destroyed, and the cause of Christ being held up as a sham. So Paul tells Timothy don't listen, don't admit a charge, don't take anything serious unless it comes from two or three witnesses when it is against an elder. Just in case we're concerned that that's some kind of barrier around an elder, he follows that right up immediately with verse 20. As for those elders who persist in sin, who are accused and persist in the face of confrontation, from Matthew 18, rebuke them. Rebuke them in the presence of all. While charges are to come... With rarity against the elder, and the elders that are there should not listen to them unless they are come with two or three witnesses. When sin is present and when it is persisted in, the consequences are drastic because of the public nature of the ministry of the elder. And so, as much as they are to honor them appropriately, they are to discipline them fairly. Accusations are not to roll off the tongue against elders unless they are grounded. And when they are grounded and then persisted in, the rebuke is to be public. It's to be public confrontation, a public rebuke of that elder, setting aside his ministry, privilege because of disqualification. And this is the reason that there is to be a public rebuke, the end of verse 20. So that, here's the purpose, so that the rest may stand in fear. So that the rest may stand in fear. And the rest here in its near context draws us back to elders. The point is, is that in a plurality of leadership within the local church, a group of men who have been given the accountability and, and the responsibility of leading God's church, if one is persistent in sin, he is accused, he is confronted, and he persists in it, he has to be publicly rebuked for the sole purpose of scaring, putting fear into the remainder of those elders, into the rest of the elders, that they see the weight of their responsibility and they take it very seriously. This is fair discipline. Public ministry comes with public rebuke. Those who persist in sin while claiming to be the leadership of the church of God come under harsh condemnation Now, Paul backs this all up. It's almost as if he assumes Timothy is getting extremely edgy and nervous about this being given to him. And he says, in the presence of God, so Timothy, I want you to grasp this, in the presence of the very God of gods, and of Christ Jesus, the judge, the head of the church, and of the elect angels, those who were faithful and did not fall, that's the the witnesses. Those are the witnesses that are here. They're sitting right here, Timothy, and I'm telling you these things in their presence. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So if Timothy had any fear, if he had any concern with living out what is commanded of him here and what he was to lead by example, the remainder of the church, the rest of the church, into as a lifestyle and a relationship to the elders... Paul here slams the door shut. I'm telling you this as if it's the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the angels. You're to keep these rules. You're to be serious about these commands. Fairness must be seen as God-given responsibility in relationship to the elders. They are to be disciplined if they are persisting in sin, and they are to be honored and cared for and protected as those who are given the leadership of the church. Now look at the discipline and the teaching and instruction that is to go out. The descriptions here are found at the end of verse 21. How is Timothy to lead by example in the church in his relationship to the elders? Well, he's to do it without prejudging and nothing from partiality. So two negatives first one is prejudice. He's not to do it with some prejudice already built in, that is a negative sense, of he's not to come to the elders that are there serving with some built-in negative opinion of an elder and let that guide the way he works with these men and the way he relates to these men. Nor, in the second part, nothing is to be done from partiality. That is the positive sense. Nothing is to be done from favoritism. It doesn't matter if he likes a couple of the elders better than the others. He's not to relate in a different fashion to them than he does to the remainder. Leadership within the church is outlined here to be, and throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, the leadership in the church is to be marked by impartiality. Favoritism is not a part of the character of God, and it is not to be a part of His church, particularly within the realm of leadership. So the discipline is to be fair. There's to be the same hesitance to listen to accusation whether the elder is one that he cares for in a special way or whether it is one that he has his suspicions about. Elders are to be rebuked publicly if they persist in sin whether it's his best friend elder or whether it is the elder that he has had the least amount of interaction with. It is without prejudice and it is without favoritism that he is to live this out as if he stands in the very presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, those who did not fall. So, Timothy is given these principles. Honor the elders appropriately, discipline the elders fairly, and then finally, be careful. Appoint the elders cautiously. And this is where we'll finish up this evening. Appoint them cautiously. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now there's been a lot of discussion about what is intended for us to be understanding here when we come to do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. But it's clear, it is clear from the pastoral epistles and even in First Timothy that the laying on of hands was what? What do we call that today? starts with an R and ends with ordination. Or ordination. That would be ordination. It's the setting aside of an elder by the elders who are established within a ministry. It is the ordination of a man, it is the committing of a man to ministry. It is affirming that he has been gifted and called. It is affirming that the congregation has recognized him as qualified for eldership and is the laying on of hands to publicly commit him to that ministry. And so Paul's comment here is particularly important in the context of what we're discussing. Don't be hasty in laying on of hands. Don't quickly put your hands on someone setting them aside publicly for the work of ministry. Appoint elders cautiously. Haste must not make waste with the appointment of elders. There are clear reasons given to us why the appointment of elders should be cautious, why it should be slow, why it should be careful, why it should not be marked by hastiness. And it's for this reason. In being hasty to lay on hands, the second half of verse 22 tells us, there is a grave danger. That the one who lays their hands on this person and commits them to ministry before God and before God's people will take part in some sense relationally in the sins of others. That is, in a hasty decision to ordain someone and set them apart for ministry, there is a potential for those who have ordained, those who have laid hands on this person to be tainted by the sin that is unknown in this one that is having hands laid upon him. And the goal at the end of verse 22 is to keep yourself pure. The Gospel is at stake. Purity is the priority in setting aside of leadership for eldership. And purity must not be sacrificed for the sake of speediness or haste. This one is crucial. This is so practical. This is so... Nuts and bolts. This is right where we live. We're a brand new ministry. All of these things. Honoring appropriately, disciplining without prejudice, without favoritism. And then finally, appointing elders. It seems so practical to our daily lives here at Grace Church. Now there's a little parenthesis, and I love this, in ESV. I don't know what your translation has, but my translation put a parenthesis around verse 23 and that's helpful because it really is a parenthesis it's as if paul he's pacing back and forth he's writing this letter and he's uh, speaking to his amanuensis who's writing it down and he says keep yourself pure and it's as if he took a drink of water and he was like oh yeah and tell timothy i know what's going on with that guy's stomach and i'm sick of this whole water only thing take some wine and help yourself your purity should not keep you from physical health. So we have a parenthesis. We have a note. It's a purity side note that Paul makes here. No longer drink only water, which is the unmemorized part of this verse, right, by the masses. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And that is the memorized part of the passage. How many times have you heard somebody say, hey, a little wine for the stomach's sake, right? Right? Go back to the first part. Not only water. That means Timothy had given himself so much to setting his life apart for purity that he wasn't drinking wine at all. And the result was that his water was probably the majority of the time very contaminated. And he probably had parasites eating in his stomach. That's just the reality of the time in which he lived. So Paul says, this is enough. Drink some alcohol. It will kill what is killing you the ailments that you're struggling with. It'll help your stomach. So he makes that purity side note, and there is not much to be made of that other than to say, wine was the medicinal purpose. It was the medicinal purpose of wine that Paul is addressing here. Verse 24 then picks right back up on the theme. The parentheses is over. Paul says, okay, now back to what I was talking about before. In appointing elders cautiously because you are you are you are in danger of being guilty of sins that you don't know about in these people to put your hands on them and to have them make a mockery of the gospel will taint you as well here's further explanation verse 24 the sins of some men some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment that is they are external they're out there they're out in the public but the sins of others appear later they are not front and center They are hidden sins. The flip side is equally true. So also good works, in verse 25, are conspicuous. They're evident. They're seen. And even those good works that are not, that is, they're done in secret, cannot remain hidden. They can't stay in secret. Holiness, righteousness, good deeds will eventually be known. They will come out. We have amazing principle given to us here. The reason to be careful in the appointment of elders is that some sin is on the outside, it's on the surface, but there is other sin that is not on the surface. It's the iceberg principle, right? One-tenth is above the water, nine-tenths is below the water. What you see is only the little tiny tip of a massive iceberg underneath. Paul says some sin is up there on the surface and you can see it, but there are other sins that are hidden and only time will reveal them. Time will establish whether someone is righteous in their character, whether God is at work in this person and in their their lifestyle, as we see outlined for us in chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, and in the characteristics of 3, 1 to 6, or whether their life is sinful and wicked on the inside. Both of those realities will will be told in time. Time will tell the story. In fact, I remember... As a young person, there was a a very dark day in my neighborhood where uh, I don't want to go into the details of everything that happened, but there were high-powered pellet rifles and BB guns involved and, and neighbor kids and then me and another kid. And uh, it was ugly. Police were called the whole nine yards. Um, I had a good alibi. I had built a structure to a good... Uh, Alibi for myself. I came home. I remember I stood by my story that I wasn't involved. I wasn't there. And I'll never forget my dad. He had no reason, he had no proof to prove that I was lying. He just said to me in a very calm tone, he looked at me straight in the eyes and he said, Look at me. So I looked at him and he said, Time will tell. Time will tell. It was like the worst feeling I had ever had in my life because I knew what time would tell. And it was bad, really bad. And you know what happened? Time told the story. That's exactly what happened. I held my guns. I stood by my story. I was faithful to my sinfulness and my wickedness, but my buddy, who was with me, caved under the pressure. And he gave up our story, and he told exactly what happened. And I came home one day from playing in the neighborhood, and I had that horrible sinking feeling when your parents ask you again. I'm going to ask you one more time were you involved in this this event and the one more time part just kind of just let me know time had told what what was truth time will always tell character will always be revealed the inward will always end up on the outside some sin is out there it's public it's seen some is hidden and to be hasty in appointing elders is to give yourself grave danger of placing your hands on someone who has nine-tenths of that iceberg, and it's sinful, but it's under the surface. Practically, just in conclusion, this is exactly why we've not rushed into appointing elders here at Grace Church. We're committed to a plurality of elders. We have two, and they're youngers, as some have called us. That's probably appropriate. Two youngers who are serving with all of God's delegated leadership as elders, and who are very aware of their age. And yet we have not rushed in as much as we want to have more elders, as much as we want to have leadership that helps inform the structure and the the purpose of our church. We've not rushed into it for this very passage. It takes time. It just takes time. And so practically that's why we've moved to a temporary plural leadership which is what we call the leadership team. And if you've been confused about that, that's why that's in your bylaws. We have a temporary structure that is made up of a group of men who were the leadership structure here before we came, who gave the, gave the church its drive and its focus, who have established what you know of Grace Church. None of them are disqualified, and yet none of them, save David and myself, are elders either. That's temporary. It will change Elders will be appointed. They will have hands laid on them. Deacons will be established. But we do not want to be hasty in those decisions because there is grave danger in hastiness. And you know as much as I do that one of the marks of youthfulness is desiring to be fast, to be hasty, to be in the sprint mode versus the marathon. And so at the recommendation of men who are much older and wiser, we have taking this upon us, taking this passage very seriously, and not rush to establish elders. Okay? These are the three principles for the relationship of the church to its eldership. Honor them appropriately, discipline them fairly, and appoint them cautiously. Now, we've said this every week in this relationship series here at the end of First Timothy. Our desire as a church and as your leadership is to live and minister within the biblical expectations and demands so that we might be bright lights for the glory of our Christ in our community. You say, what's the application to my life? I mean, how do I walk away? what, what What do I learn from this passage? You learn how to pray. As God's people who are not serving as elders, you learn how to pray. You learn to set your expectation in order. Set your ideals in order with what you find to be true in God's Word. Many of you have been wounded. You have been deeply wounded by leadership that has failed. And so you can pray with all the more understanding that God would establish a leadership that has a right relationship to the body and a leadership that is faithful in character and in calling. That God would preserve the glory of His name here at Grace Church. We must set our understanding of the church within the bounds of God's Word no matter what our previous experience or thoughts have been. And so whether we have understood or whether we have had preconceived ideas, whatever those ideas have been as to the relationship of the church to its elders, allow this section of Scripture to inform your thinking. Because in informing your thinking, you will be gaining more of the mind of Christ and be able to bring more and more honor and glory to God as you're conformed to the image of His Son. And that's what we love about His Word. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and the proper relationship of the church to elders, to the leadership. It's been a full day. It's been a full day in God's Word. I trust that there is much that the Spirit is doing in your heart as He is in mine. We look forward to a week ahead praying for you, upholding you before the throne that grace would be evident, that fruit would be born, and that God would be glorified through your lives.